The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Tonight, our sermon lesson is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. We're taking a look at verses 20 through 26. And this is one of those, those texts. John, John's Gospel is a lot like this. John's writing is a lot like this. It can, it can be a little dizzying at times, where you, you read the Bible and you say, I have no idea what that just said. I've probably read this text 40 to 50 times this past week um, in a couple of different languages trying to figure out exactly what was at the heart of it, but I I think I got to it for the most part. So let's read from 20 to 26, and I'll do my best to explain it. Here, Jesus is praying, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with them where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is God's word. Here's what's going on. John 17 is a portion of scripture known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. The whole, the whole chapter is a portion of uh, a prayer of Jesus. And John's gospel gives us more details about what's going on during Holy Week and especially during things like Maundy Thursday, the day before Jesus is being crucified and in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. And this long prayer really has three movements to it. The first movement is the idea that Jesus wants God, his Father, to be glorified. The second movement is he's praying for his disciples that he's now about to depart, and he's saying, Father, please take care of them. The third movement is the one that we just read. The third movement of the prayer is actually about you and me. It's about all people who would believe in Jesus after he's already ascended into heaven. And the specific thing that Jesus is praying for us about in this prayer is that we would have unity, that you and I and true believers would be one, okay? Now, here's the way we're going to divide this up tonight. Again, I, I don't know how great this, this division is, but this is the best I could do. The four parts of it that we're going to look at, not just three parts tonight, four parts we're going to look at is Jesus is praying about what he knows, in other words, what he's experienced in the past. Where, what is his basis for unity? What he wants for us, what he does in order to make that unity possible, and finally, what that will bring into the world. Okay? Here's the four parts. What he knows, what he wants, what he does, and what that brings. First of all, what he knows experientially. Here's what he said uh, is, is the basis of his desire for our unity. He says, Father, make them one just as you are in me and I am in you. 
Obviously, when Jesus says, you are in me and I am in you, and he doesn't mention the Spirit, but we talked about him last week and we'll talk about him next week, clearly Jesus is talking about the Trinity, okay? The three persons in one, I am in you and you, you are in me. What exactly is the benefit of us knowing about the Trinity? Well, there's a passage in John's first epistle in chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle John says, he makes this crazy claim, he says, God is love. What does that mean? He doesn't just say God is the one who invented love, although that's true. He doesn't just say that God is the one who has expressed uh, unfathomable love to us, although that's also true. No, he says God is love. What does that mean? The Trinity is a unique teaching within Christianity, and it's a teaching that says that before anything ever existed in the world, before the universe was created, their God was just as a relationship unto himself. In other words, every other concept of God out there, any other monotheistic concept of God where God is just one person, in order for God to actually love, he has to create something or someone to love before he can express love. And therefore, with every other conception of God, doing and creating work is more primary to that God's existence than loving. Not so with a triune God. You see, before God ever created anything, before God ever did anything in this universe, the three persons of the Trinity were loving and serving one another. That means love is the most essential, most primary, most fundamental quality of God. Love even before work. Grace even before doing. Now, this concept of of the Trinity reflects how we are supposed to be because God, St. Augustine is the one who first taught me about this, by the way. He's the one who said, if God is triune, that means that he is the basis for every other possible human relationship. You fast forward to Jesus' prayer here tonight and he's praying that we would be one. Why? Because he himself has been in perfect, unified relationship from eternity past and he knows how good it is. He knows that it is his greatest joy and the highest goodness that we can ever experience in this life is perfect, loving unity in relationship. And so tonight, he asks for unity for us, and a unity that goes beyond any other worldly category of unity. It goes beyond skin deep. It goes beyond uh, economic status or social status or, or anything else like that. It goes beyond language. It's a unity that's only based in Christ. And this perfect, beautiful unity that Christians are supposed to have in Christ has been foreshadowed throughout Scripture as a better unity than any other possible unity. Let me give you just one illustration of this. The unity that God intended for his people. If you go all the way back, uh, the first time I thought about this was this past week in preparing for tonight. If you go all the way back to when God created the temple in the Old Testament, one of the commands he gave about the temple when he ordered that the uh, temple be built was in 1 Kings 6 and 7, he said, there's going to be no hammer and no chisel and no shaping going on of the stones that go into the temple. Now, why is that? It's because at the temple site in Jerusalem, God didn't want there to be any noise and any clamor and any turbulence going on. Therefore, when the, the stones were shaped for the temple, it all had to take place over in the quarry. Why? At God's temple, he wanted peace and unity, not discord and noise. And therefore, when the stones finally got transported and arrived at the temple site, guess what? They just beautifully fit together. 
right away. What is God's temple in the New Testament? You and I are God's temple. And those of us who are in Christ, the moment we come together to worship Christ, we beautifully fit together. And what that means is God doesn't want us there, there to be any noise amongst us. No fighting, no bickering, no quarreling, no noise over things about right and wrong or procedures or anything else that people tend to, could, could potentially bicker about in life or even in the church. We're just supposed to beautifully fit together right off the bat and celebrate that unity which comes from the triune God. Now, I've already hinted at what Jesus wants then. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, let them be one. He says it at the beginning of verse 21. The problem with this, however, is that there are two major things that are working against our unity. The first thing working against our unity is what the Bible calls our sinful nature. Uh, Martin Luther used to refer to the sinful nature as the human heart. In Latin, it's incurvatus in se, the human heart turned inward upon itself. That means that we are inherently self-focused and self-wired and self-centered which means we don't like to have unity with others. We don't like to love and serve and put others ahead of ourselves. The other thing that works against our unity in this world is that we live in a particular culture that actually encourages that kind of self-focus. It's called Western individualism. And it's been the norm in our culture for a long time, actually going all the way back to the Enlightenment period. This is the reason why in the past 50 years or so there's been a bunch of unity movements because once people see Western individualism kind of run amok and go crazy. They see how ugly it is. If everybody's self-centered, it's naturally going to lead to the breakdown of society. This is why you've seen things like, as simple as things like coexist bumper stickers or as complex as the non-denominational church movement. Why is that? Because we're sensing there's a lack of unity in the world and we're pushing towards unity. One author that's helped me out a lot on this is a woman by the name of Jean Twenge. She's a psychologist at the University of, of San Diego State. And she's written two really good books on American individualism. One is called The Narcissism Epidemic, and one of them about young adults is called Generation Me. And in those books, she makes a bunch of different cases for how we've shifted to all self-focused behavior in society, and our children are raised just glorifying self. In fact, one of the things she talks about is the language we use today. For instance, she says in one of the books, she says, self-focused phrases are not just individualistic, they are also, well, just wrong. So, for instance, she says, just be yourself. This is the most common advice that parents give to kids when they go out into social situations. Just be yourself. She said, just be yourself sounds like good advice at first, but what if you're a jerk? What if you're a serial killer? Just be yourself. Or, when it comes to relational advice, one of the most common pieces of advice given is you have to just love yourself first. This is just a assumed as truth in, in modern relationships. You have to love yourself first. She says it has a crucial flaw. People who really love themselves first are called narcissists. And statistically, they make for horrible relationship partners. To show how pervasive that, how pervasive that self-focused kind of language actually is, uh, Jean Twenge and one of her colleagues at San Diego State, they put the, the top 10 billboard uh, music songs from the past 30 years. It was a research from 1980 to 2010. 
and they put them into a word analysis program to see what kind of uh, patterns in language had developed over the past 30 years. And one of the things that they found was there had been kind of this radical increase in self-focused terminology, the spike in words like I and me, and a decrease in words like us and we. There was a rise in antisocial words like hate and kill, and there was a decrease in social style words like love and sweet. The point is simply this. You have several factors that are absolutely working against unity in your life right now. We all have this beast inside of us called a sinful nature that only wants to think about ourselves and doesn't want to think about unity with others. We also have a society, unlike any other throughout history, that totally strokes the ego of the individual self and says, yeah, you just got to be you irrespective of anybody else out there. So there's a bunch of forces working against that and yet we're starting to finally see this as a society and we're clamoring, well, we need more peace, we need more unity, and we need more love of one another. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. When you say if there's no God in society and you don't talk about God, and if you say you've got to be your own person and just answer to yourself, and then you say, well, we need more love and we need more unity, you have no basis for it. And this is kind of where we're at. Let me give you just one example of this. There's a thousand examples of this. Let me give you just one. Let's say today in our society we all agree and we determine that everybody gets to decide what is right for themselves, for instance, when it comes to an issue uh, like human sexuality. You get to sleep with whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Just, by and large, try to keep it behind closed doors and don't hurt anybody else. Okay, I think that's approximately where we're at as a society today. But we're starting to realize there are some inevitable flaws in that type of mentality. Here's just an example. Let's say, for instance... Someone comes along and says, you know what, but most of the good research out there says that let's say if somebody consumes, let's say a young man consumes pornography, and he might do it behind closed doors, you know, but he consumes pornography, and all the best science and all the best research out there says that if he does that, it doesn't just stay behind closed doors, rather that leads to him more objectifying women in his life, it leads statistically to less stable relationships and actually more violence in relationships. And therefore, I don't think that's good for society. Whether someone's doing it behind closed doors or not, they're taking it outside of those closed doors. So who gets to say what we do? The person who says, yes, let's all do whatever we want, just behind closed doors, or the person who says, uh, no, statistically, the evidence suggests that's going to create problems for us socially. Who gets to choose? Well, for the sake of unity, for the sake of, of peace in society, let's just be democratic about it. Let's let the majority decide. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that either. Did you know that the majority in the South in the 19th century was okay with slavery? The majority in Germany in in mid-20th century was okay with the experimentation and murder of, of Jewish men and women. I'm not completely confident that the majority in 21st century America is, is capable of coming up necessarily with right or wrong. So who gets to decide? My my point is, you can, as a majority, as a democracy, you can create a unity, but it's not necessarily good unity. Secular unity, relativistic attempts at unity, might actually have unity, but they, generally speaking, don't work because they either have no basis or the basis which they have doesn't actually create good unity. It creates oppressive unity. The triune God is constantly pushing us towards unity. But we have to have a basis, and it has to be good unity. 
It should be common sense that community is always better than individuality. Certainly nobody understands this better than Jesus himself who was part of the triune God from eternity past. But even we, just from common sense, should be able to figure it out, right? Community is better than individuality. If you ask uh, anybody, what is your best couple of moments that you've experienced in your life? Think of a couple. Nobody answers that question by saying, you know, I was sitting alone one night, one Friday night at home watching TV and nobody ever starts out their answer that way. Nobody ever says, best moments of my life, well, I had nothing going on on a Saturday so I just slept in super late and even though it might sound fun, nobody ever points to that as the best moments of life. Nobody ever says, I went, uh, I did a cross-country trip, a road trip by myself and this was No one forms memories that way. The best moments you've ever had, by and large, are experienced in community. Why is it that whenever we experience something good or bad, whenever we achieve something new, people nowadays, the first thing we run to is to post about it on social media. Because we want somebody else to share in the joy of our achievement or to share in the sadness that we're experiencing. With every like that that post gets, we feel like, I'm not alone. I'm doing this in community. Let me give you one other example. Sex. By and large, most people tend to refer to sex as one of the more pleasurable experiences of life. I think. That's what most of the research says on it anyways. You know how God first describes sex in the Bible? In Genesis 2? The two become one. It's community formation. To form community in every walk of life is the single most enjoyable experience, even for people who are are natural introverts, sort of like myself. So let me just kind of recap where we're at here. We've said that unharnessed individualism gets ugly real quick. We've said that human beings naturally, inherently crave community, whether they, they say so or not. We've said that in order to have unity, you have to have a basis for unity. But even if you have a basis, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to create a good unity. It might create an oppressive unity. And finally, the most important point probably for Christians is Christ says he wants us to be a community. So whether we logically understand it or not, we understand that it's Christ's will. Christ wants us to be counterculturally one to such an extent He constantly is pointing to this in Scripture to such an extent that, for instance, when he gives us the Lord's Prayer, you know how he starts out? He doesn't say, this then is how you should pray, my Father who art in heaven. No. What does he say? This then is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. Christian faith is constantly expressing itself in unity. There is no such thing as a churchless Christian. This is, by the way, this tends to be one of the biggest points of tension with young adult Christians in America who are used to doing everything kind of on our own. You can take classes online whenever I want. I can binge watch whatever I want on Netflix whenever I want. And maybe I should just be able to do my spiritual life completely on my own apart from connection to a church or whatever else. History says you can't do it. Logic says you can't do it. And Jesus Christ says you can't do it. You have to do your Christianity in community. Fortunately, in order to do that, in order to help that, he gives us, one, the church, and two, he gives us a basis for community. What is the basis? This is our third point. This is what he does to make us one. He gives us the gospel. What is the gospel? Every single human being, all sinners, are saved by grace and grace alone. 
You are saved only by grace, nothing more, nothing less, simply the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the implications of that are unifying. What it means is I never have a right to look down on anybody else as worse than me because I am just a sinner who is saved by grace just like that person. Nor do I ever have to fear looking up as anybody else as superior than me because that person just like me is simply a sinner who is saved only by grace. If everybody in the world actually believed the gospel, for that matter, if everybody in the church actually believed the gospel, it would be the end of things like racism and sexism and classism because the gospel of grace is the great equalizer of life. See, the Christian church is absolutely no danger to the people who are outside of the church. That's what makes it such an incredible unifying force. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't churches that are dangerous to other people. You and I both know and have probably experienced churches at some point in time that have unifying factors other than the gospel. Maybe they're unifying because it's people of the same ethnic group, or they're unifying because it has extended family members just in that one church, or they're unifying because everybody likes that particular style of music or lives out in that particular subdivision or whatever else. That's not the unifying nature of church. Churches that are unified in the gospel, in the grace that says we're all equally sinners saved only by grace, churches like that are of no harm to the people outside of that church. Why? Because the people in that church consider themselves just as much sinners as the people outside of the church, and so they don't condescend to them. So you see, the point is every single unity that's out there is either a unity that either has no basis or it has a basis, but it tends to despise the people outside of the unity. Let me just give you a quick example of this to, again, kind of flesh out what I'm saying here. Let's say two kids make the honor roll. Do they have a unity? Yes, they both made the honor roll. How do they feel about the people outside of that unity? Be honest, what is this sinful nature? How does it tend to look at it? Not quite smart enough. They didn't quite work as hard as we did, did they? What about the people that don't make the honor roll? Do they have a unity? Yeah, they have a unity. Didn't make the honor roll. How do they feel about the people outside of their unified group? Let's be honest. What is the natural inclination? They think they're better than us, don't they? And this is the reason why the poor people of the world think the rich people are the problem, and the rich people of the world think the poor people are the problem, and the Republicans think the Democrats are the problem, and the Democrats think the Republicans are the problem. The only, only the gospel itself creates pure unity because, number one, it has a basis, and number two, it leads us not to despise the people outside of our group, but actually love the people outside of our group. Jesus himself, by the way, is the ultimate example of this. Our text here tonight says, Jesus says, Righteous Father, they know that you have sent me. Why did God send Jesus? The Apostle Paul explains it pretty clearly. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, do you see what that does? If you believe the gospel, not only does it unify you with other people who believe the gospel, but what does it do? It doesn't cause you to be condescending or resentful to other people. It causes you to be more humble. Paul says, of whom I am the worst. It's the only unity that life can produce. The gospel is the only unifying factor in the world that actually causes you to not only be unified, but to not despise the people outside of your unified group. At the center of Christian theology is a man who selflessly came from heaven to earth, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to die completely alone so that all of us who on the basis of our selfish behavior in life deserve not to experience the blessing of community would one day experience the eternal perfect community that is called heaven. 
This is the only thing, it's the only unity that can unify us in a purely positive way. Now, what does that look like? Final point. Here's what that brings. Let me just show you, again, a couple more points in the text. Jesus says, look, if you have a unity that's based purely on the gospel, it's going to do two things for you. Number one, it's going to do two things for your church, too. It is going to cause others to believe. You notice he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A beautiful unity of God's people causes the rest of the world to be attracted like a city on a hill and to be a light to the world and we're attracted to it. Number two, what it does is it brings glory to God. Now, just very practically, what does that look like here at St. Marcus? What does that look like here as a Livet community? Let me give you a couple quick examples here and then we're done. Number one, it looks like community groups. Okay? What does perfect grace community that draws others to us and gives glory to God look like here in our Livet community? It looks like community groups. Why? Because you can worship God in a church service, absolutely. But I don't know if you can perfectly experience and enjoy community just in a worship service. Why? Because there's not a whole lot of interaction that goes on between God's people in the course of a worship service. Maybe it depends who you're sitting by a little bit, but by and large, there's not much back and forth interaction. You can, by the way, so American culture is very much a consuming culture, so people do that to everything, including to their church lives. They say, well, I'm going to consume whatever I think is good for me. That's not the mentality of church going, though. It's not just about me consuming, it's about me giving and being part of the body and serving. And by the way, you can consume for a while and maybe be entertained for a while, but anybody who's ever experienced boredom with church, the first thing I'll say is get yourself into a community group. I guarantee it gets better. Okay? There's one. Number two, service. Service to people beyond just our community. We have a great opportunity for this coming up on May 14th when we do uh, some, some community cleanup here in our neighborhood. We've already got about uh, 20 people signed up. Great opportunity. Um, we need more people in, in our, our Live It leadership group in assistance. We're running Craig and Ashley about into the ground at this point. We need some more people helping them out too. Uh, we need so many more volunteers around St. Marcus, whether it's at school or at church. God has given us all unique individual abilities and capabilities. God-given spiritual gifts. How do you use them? Just keep in mind that Jesus uses the example of us as a body. The Apostle Paul talks about us as a church, as a body, and every body has important parts. Even the ones that seem small aren't small. I remember reading an article once about somebody who lost their little pinky toe and had to do complete rehab therapy to figure out how to walk again. Even something you think is small as a pinky toe, as unimpressive uh, as a pinky toe, is incredibly important. So here's the question. If I'm really part of the body, if you cut me off, if you cut me out, how would the rest of the body compensate? If you can say, well, they could cut me out and cut me off and they can keep right on going with business as usual, you have to ask yourself the question, am I really part of the body? Am I functioning as part of the body right now? Number three, accountability and encouragement. Um, again, the great, greatest way for this to happen is, is in something like a community group. Uh, if you are experiencing the joy of, let's say, a, a new pregnancy, if you want others to experience that joy too, if you want others to shoulder the burdens that you are carrying around in life, maybe as a result of some health problems, if you, 
Let me give you an example myself. There's been a couple periods in my life where I was sort of wandering away a little bit and somebody had to come and talk to me and, and thank God they did. But if I were wandering away from my Christian faith, my walk with Christ, I hope and pray that somebody would love me enough and be bold enough and respect me enough but also be gentle enough to come and, and tell me to find me and get me back on the right track. If you're not cemented into the community life of a church, who is going to do that for you? And how are you going to do that for somebody else? Number four, diverse talents in the body. We're much better off and we're much more beautiful when we're using all of God's best gifts. For example, if the leadership team uh, for Livet said, Pastor Hine, next week you have to cover not only the sermon, but you have to cover the music too. It wouldn't be pretty. The sermon would be about the same quality, but when it came time for the music, I would be blowing in a jug like a hillbilly or something like that to give you a tune because I don't have those instrumental gifts. We're much better when all of us use our gifts. Where should we be growing? What ministries should we be starting because of the distinct and unique, beautiful gifts that God has specifically given you that we still need to tap into? And finally, Together, unified, we can make a greater impact. If I wanted to do mission work over in China or Africa or South America, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that on my, my salary I could make it happen just by myself. But if we pull our resources together, we can accomplish so much more together. We can send missionaries. We can train people to be ministers of the gospel. We can do global charitable efforts. And the point is this, this is not an exhaustive list. We are so much better as a community than we are as individuals and nobody but knows this better than Jesus who has been part of the triune God from eternity past. Jesus selflessly came to earth to die for our sins alone so that one day we would be in perfect community that is called heaven. But as people who live their lives built on this truth, we gather together to create a more beautiful community than this world knows as a testament to that coming reality. Let's close with a prayer and ask God to bless our community. Lord Jesus, we tend to think like the world. And humbly we come before you tonight and the biggest worries on our minds are the things that are going on in our own lives. My guess is that's probably true of every one of us. We can't stop thinking about ourselves. And yet you, Jesus, triune God, have been loving and serving the persons of the Trinity for all eternity. Give us a spirit like that. Put your spirit deeper into our hearts so that we can think about the needs and concerns of others ahead of self, so that we can be a beautiful community of believers that loves and serves one another and is a blessing to the community that surrounds us here in our neighborhood. Lord Jesus, we can only do this by your strength. Forgive us for our self-centeredness, but now empower us with a greater, more beautiful unity that's based on your triunity. Jesus, we pray this in your name.